let's pray and then we begin. Lord, we just thank you for this opportunity to meet together for these few minutes on Wednesday nights. We just ask you, Lord, to speak to us from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're looking at 1 Timothy, which is a letter that Paul, the guy who started churches throughout that part of Europe, Eastern, what we would call Eastern Europe, Greece and even Turkey, um, Western Asia. Um, and Timothy is a young pastor, young leader of a church in Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey now. And uh, he gives him letters of, uh, a letter of instruction on how to lead and, and things that he believes is important for church life. And so we're going to look at chapter 2, verses 8 to 15. And the title I gave this is Priorities for Men and Women. Uh, this is mostly about the women, but it does relate to us as men. And this one requires some ex ex explanation because uh, it's kind of unusual. He said, verse 8, I desire, therefore, that the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. So the lifting of our hands is biblical. It's a sign of surrender. It's a sign of uh, even in school we learn to lift our hands because we don't know all the answers, right? Or if we think we know the answer, we raise our hand, of course. Um, and it's a sign of honor. I mean, even in the secular realm, you go to a concert, hands are up a lot of times. Uh, in a sport event, if somebody scores a goal, the hands go up. Yes! I mean, it's just a natural thing in us to show honor by waving our hands. Uh, someone we love, we wave our hand and, hey, we're expressing with more than just our voice. And so God desires that as men everywhere that we lift up our, our hands and holy hands, hands that aren't involved in sinning, uh, the hands that are devoted to serving the Lord without wrath and doubting. Um, anger and doubts are two of the things that we face as men, probably as much as other things. Um, and he desires that we put our trust in the Lord. And when we fully trust God, we'll find that anger issues aren't as big of a deal because we're trusting God. We're not in charge of everything. And uh, when we put our full trust in God, doubt is, is resolved. It's like, okay, I'm not going to doubt. I'm just going to trust God. I'm not going to yield into my doubts. And now he starts talking to the women. In like manner also, that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with uh, propriety, which Siri defines as something that is seen as being fit for the occasion, proper, and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing. So the key there is modesty. Not saying that wearing jewelry is wrong. If you think it says that, then you've got a contradiction in the Bible because God promises to bless us like a bride wears her jewels. Jewels. Um, he's going to bless us like a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments. And so... Um, the key is 
honoring God. And women are beautiful creatures, and they can dress in such a way that draws every head in the room to look at them. They can do it. They've got that kind of power. And uh, it's all about the hands going up to the Lord. <laughs> Us putting our eyes on the Creator and not on the creation. Um, there's a there's a sin I call defrauding, and that's where you create a desire in someone that can't be righteously fulfilled. Uh, if I make a promise to you and you get your hopes up, and then I break that promise or forget that promise, you feel defrauded, you feel cheated, you have to confront me. Hey, well, women can dress in such a way, and I'm sure men can too, but as a man I can speak uh, along the lines of how women dress. They can dress in such a way that it creates a desire in men that see them, desires that cannot be fulfilled righteously. You know, if you act on your lust with someone you're not married to, that's unrighteous, right? So unrighteous desires can be generated by how women dress. Does that mean as men we just need to be uh, guys that have no con no self control? No, uh, we've got to learn to control our eyes and not be drawn to that stuff. But as women in Christ, they've got to learn how to not tempt their brothers. God knows there's enough temptation in the world. So uh, let's move on. Verse 10, but which is proper, tell them what not to wear and how not to dress, but now they're to dress uh, which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. So um, the more beautiful a person is, I guess the more of a cross they have to bear. Uh, in all the years of pastoring here, 24 years, I've only had, had to talk to women a couple times on an individual basis. And sometimes they feel picked on, feel singled out. Well, that's just part of the cross they have to bear. Obviously, I did it very gently and carefully. All right. Yeah. Any questions or comments? Yes, Mike. Well, I think it not only applies to how women look in front of men, but I, to me, I kind of see uh, women... Uh, look at each other probably more than men do about how they dress and what they're wearing. Mm -hmm. And if you're wearing it just to show off, to to build yourself up, you know, wearing pearls and, mm -hmm. and uh, fancy, you know, gold and all that stuff they're talking about. I think if you're wearing it just to um, make yourself look more important or better, or, that's kind of the picture I'm seeing in it too. Is that you know you're uh, Making other women feel jealous or yeah. envious or whatever. And as men too, I mean, we can be obsessed with how we dress. We dress to impress, and um, sometimes church-going folks are the worst when it comes to the men because the expensive suits, expensive suits. Not that I'm throwing stones at churches that wear suits, but uh, trying to look like a million bucks and the fake Rolex and all that stuff. We just. Uh, we need to bring glory to the Lord or glory to ourselves. So I'm not saying we dress like slobs or like Amish. Obviously, that draws attention. Yeah. <laughs> it's moderation is what it is. Uh, if I dress up like a cowboy with all the regalia, I can be drawing attention to myself. 
Um, and sometimes it fits for the occasion. Maybe uh, maybe you really are a cowboy and you need you, you need some chaps. No, I don't know that. Anyway. Um, now here we go. Diving into the controversy, verse eleven. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. Woo! Um, Let me put my wife on speaker real quick. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> uh, first of all, I want to point out... Um, it is believed that Paul wrote this letter in Greek. I mean, our oldest manuscripts of this book is written in Greek. And the Greek word for woman is also the Greek word for wife. So it would not be improper to read it. Let a wife learn in silence with all submission. I did not permit a wife to teach or to have authority over a man but to be in silence. And the Greek word for a man is the same word for husband. So you could, and not violate the Greek, um, I do not permit a wife to teach or to have authority over a husband, but to be in silence. So it has to do with, uh, it could very well have to do with a wife's position in letting the husband be the leader in the home. Um, because he goes into a husband and wife, the first one. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And if Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. So Adam wasn't deceived, but he was tempted by the woman. And, of course, he blamed her <coughs> instead of repenting. Nevertheless, she'll be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. All right, there's one other place in the New Testament where Paul talks about women being silent in church. And so I wrote a little brochure based on something I wrote a few years ago on that other passage, which is in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And I'll give these to you guys when you leave. You can read it and, and see what you think about my thoughts. Uh, anytime you literally interpret a verse, and your your little interpretation causes contradictions with other verses, then something isn't right. Example, uh, Jesus said, unless you hate your father, mother, brother, or sister, you cannot be my disciple. He said that one time. Um, but he said more than once, at least three times, that we're to honor our father and mother. So how do I honor my father and mother and hate them? you got a contradiction if you take both of them literal. Well, you go to the original language, and the Greek word for hate means to love less. Unless you love your father, mother, brother, and sister less, then you love me, you cannot be my disciple. To me, 
that's the right interpretation because that fits in with the two greatest commands. The first one is to love God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength. And then the second great command is to love your neighbor as yourself. So we're to love God with everything in us more than we love ourselves, and we're to love our neighbors as ourselves. So that's to love our neighbors less than we love God, but to love our neighbors as much as we love ourselves. You see that? So to hate your father and mother, to take that literally, you've got a contradiction in the Bible because we're supposed to honor our father and mother. In fact, uh, some of those religious Pharisees had pledged uh, to, to uh, devote so much money to the temple so they wouldn't have to take care of their parents in their old age, thinking that they were going to leverage leverage God with certain verses that talk about giving and neglect their parents. And Jesus said, no, no, you're making God's word to not have any power or no effect because of this tradition you developed. And then they weren't even giving it to the temple. It was pledged to the temple. Like, I made a pledge or I made a commitment. Sorry, Mom and Dad, I'm still trying to save up ten grand to give to the church. So you're all going to have to figure out how to make it on your own. That's that's what was happening. So they were misapplying one verse to neglect obeying another verse. Um, so uh, some other examples. I mean, I mean, even with us, if people take something we say out of context and apply it literally, it could create chaos in our own lives. Um, in another place, Paul told this same guy, Timothy, drink no longer water, but drink a little wine for your stomach's sake. He, I guess he had frequent stomach ailments, and so he needed a little wine to settle down his innards. Well, you can take that out of context. As the Bible says, no longer drink water. It's a sin to drink water. Well, fresh water is a blessing. It's a symbol of the Holy Spirit. It's it's a, a lot of other things. And so, uh, and the Bible doesn't echo that interpretation. Drink no longer water is to be understood. Uh, he was implying don't only drink water. Basically what he's saying, drink no longer water only. He was implying the word only, although he didn't say it. Don't drink water anymore, drink some wine. Um, and there's some other verses like that. Who's heard of snake handler churches? Snake handlers? Uh, the most recent one, a guy died. He had just been on 2020 or one of those news specials, and he showed people his finger that he lost. He got snake bit in the finger, and the finger fell off, and so he kept the finger. Here's my finger. Here's the nub, you know. Yeah, yeah, I, you know. And uh, one long, one of those snakes bit him, and he died that time. And the reason they did that, Handle snakes was based on a statement Jesus said in Mark 16. These signs will follow those that believe. They'll lay hands on the sick and they'll recover. They'll take up serpents. And if they drink anything deadly, it will not harm them. So they took that as a command to play with snakes in church and to drink strychnine. But they, they, took the, they, they didn't take it literally. Jesus said if they drink anything deadly, it will not hurt them. So my belief is what he meant was go and preach the gospel and 
if somebody tries to poison you, it won't work. If a snake bites you, as we saw happen to Paul, you'll survive it. He got bit by a snake in the book of Acts. But these guys took it literally, but really didn't. They would drink strychnine, but they wouldn't drink cyanide. <laughs> and they would play with snakes until somebody died. And claim they're obeying the Bible. Well, you've got a monstrosity here. You're misapplying something that violates other scriptures because the scriptures also say don't tempt God. Uh, there's a story in the Bible of Satan tempting Jesus who took him to a high place. Jesus had been on a long fast and Satan tried to tempt him. And uh, Jesus is on this high place and the devil quotes a word to him where uh, it's a verse about protection. I think it may be Psalm 91 where he won't allow your foot to stumble over a stone. All right, that, that's, that's a metaphor for God helping us to walk surely. Satan quotes that. The Bible says he, will, he won't allow your foot to step over a, to trip over a stone, so go ahead and jump off this temple, and the angels will catch you. And Jesus said, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord, which means don't put God to the test. Don't be playing games with God like that. And playing with snakes, you're playing games with God. You're violating, using one scripture inappropriately that contradicts another scripture. Something's wrong. That's why we're supposed to study, Paul told Timothy in another place, study to show yourself approved. So, uh, rightly dividing the word of truth. And so we've got to... Uh, Read and think and make sure we understand appropriately what the Bible is saying. And so if you take this text literally, women can't talk in church, and but he's not saying in church here. Women have to be silent. Well, why did God give them voices? Why did God give them tongues to speak with? And women aren't saved unless they have babies. Well, what happens if uh, they're barren or they're single? Ooh, this is a tough deal, isn't it? So, um, if we take that literally, go ahead, Tom. Well, on the, on the childbearing, that's actually one interpretation that. That's actually pointing to the fact that that women had were given the privilege of, of giving Christ birth. Right. Not yeah. You're getting ahead of me. Okay. okay. I was building tension in the Sorry room. About that. <laughs> Beads of sweat are gathering on our brow. <laughs> I'll back up. Okay. Anyway. First of all, on women being silent. To take that literally, then you've got some contradictions in the Bible. You have promises of God pouring out his spirit on men and women, and men and women prophesying, speaking inspired utterances. You cannot do that and be silent. So there's a contradiction right there in the Bible. Uh, you also have the verse that tells us how salvation happens. We believe in our heart. And we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus. And we believe in our heart that God is raised from our dead. 
raised him from the dead and confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. That's the essence of what happens when we're saved. All right, if a woman has to be silent, how can she confess Jesus? And put that with this, oh, she's not saved by confessing Jesus. She's saved by having babies. You've got a you've got a monstrous doctrine there of salvation by works and not by what Jesus did on the cross. So this can't be taken literal, otherwise you've got problems with other verses. Okay. Um so there's any number of possibilities. Uh, obviously, I think the home is an issue. The husband needs to be the spiritual leader of the home. Uh, another issue is the church in Ephesus may have had women that were uneducated, and the husband needed to step up and be the spiritual leader and help the wives to learn, especially if they couldn't read. Another issue is is uh, when Paul would start a church, he would go to, to the uh, synagogue and preach to the Jews first. And then when they threw him out, the Jews that had become believers would follow him to a Gentile's house or to their house and continue regular meetings. Are you tracking with me? All right. The synagogue meetings were based on open discussion and on debates, even some arguing. You see Jesus doing that. The meaning of synagogue is meeting place. Yes. Not church. Yeah, assembly. So um, if, if, if the roots of their meeting is kind of a friendly debate, uh, we could debate things in here and be fine, but get a woman in here, and we start arguing with her, and her husband gets ticked off that we're arguing with his wife, it gets kind of awkward. I don't like to argue with other men's wives. Just don't. <laughs> So, 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 so this is the easy way to this is the easy way to do it. The women are downstairs; they can debate all day long, and we're up here; we're debating all day long, and we may come to some places of disagreement tonight, and we'll still love each other and still be friends, and not be uh, offended or anything. But you get, and I know this sounds sexist, but you get into an argument with women. I can only handle arguing with my wife, not someone else's. So there's headship in this thing. There's order. If a woman needs to be argued with, let her husband do it, basically, is the way, is the way I see it. <laughs> um, Peter was asked by Jesus, who do you say that I am in, Mark, in Matthew 16? And Peter said, you're the Messiah, or the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus, Jesus said, you're right, on this rock I will build my church. So the church is built on knowing who Jesus is. If a woman has to be silent, how can she declare who Jesus is? You've got Paul mentioning women in his... The same guy that wrote this, uh, in 1 Corinthians 16, 19, he tells the church in Corinth, Aquila and Priscilla greet you heartily in the Lord. So he's with his husband and wife sending greetings. Well, what's Priscilla doing sending her greetings? She needs to hush her mouth. She's a woman. See that? Um 
In Acts 18, we have Aquila and Priscilla teaching a man, Apollos, about the ways of the Lord. Um, in his second letter to Timothy, he tells Timothy to greet Prissa and Aquila in the household of Onesiphorus. Eubulus greets you, as well as Pudens, Linus, Claudia, and all the brethren. So here's a woman sending greetings. How could she do that and be quiet? So you see, I, I, there, there's some contradiction here. There's a word here in verse 12 that says, not to usurp the authority. Does it say not speak, but not to usurp the authority given to the man? You yeah. can speak without usurping right. the authority. Right. Um, wives need to let their husband lead. Is that easy for them to do? It's horrible. It's horrible. Because a lot of times when we get married, we're not ready for leadership. I know in my case, <laughs> what my wife did was a very brave thing marrying me. Putting me in the driver's seat of the, of the family and trusting me, it's a scary thing to be a wife. But it's God's plan that we man up, that we grow up, and that we step up to the plate. And uh, that's why we leave our father and mother and cleave to our wife. Ma our mama's not in charge of us anymore. Daddy doesn't have the say he used to have anymore. We now have the say. A man leaves his father and mother and cleaves to his wife. And so um, does that mean women have to obey perfectly and then we are free to do things imperfectly? No, we're to lead the way. Be worthy of being followed. <laughs> Be the leader, not the one with the iron fist, not the one that says, I'm the head of the house. Just be you, but be trustworthy. Be someone they can look to for leadership. And if they're rebelling, if they're not submitting, pray. Pray. If that doesn't work, then get some help. But I really believe it's God's will that we have authority in our homes and the wives let us be the head. We're representing Jesus in the home, and they represent the church. Does that make any sense? All right. Um, and he uses the order of creation to illustrate it. Adam was first, and then Eve. And Eve was first in sinning, and Adam followed. Now, keep in mind, Adam was older than her, and he was put in the garden to, to guard it and to tend it, and if you see your wife talking to a snake, don't you think you should step up and say, hey, what's going on here? <laughs> he was with her, the Bible says, when this was going on. So he really wasn't being the spiritual leader he should have been. Um, so the position of women in the eyes of of creation fell, just like the position of man fell. We both, men and women, fell. And if we could go to Genesis 3. First book of the Bible, chapter 3.
verse 15, he's talking to the serpent. He said, I will put enmity or a division between you, the serpent, and the woman, between your seed and her seed. Singular seed, capital S. He shall bruise your head, the serpent's head, and you, the serpent, will bruise his heel. And then to the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. So there's a desire in them to be married, even a desire to be in charge. <laughs> but God established it where the man, should, the man should be the leader. That's not a dictatorship. That's a, a benevolent uh, leadership, I believe. Um, so here, this curse is brought between the woman and the enemy is division, and between her seed and the, the serpent seed, and her seed will bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So there's this promise of this promised seed. So if you read further on in the story, she has a son. His name is Cain. And the woman said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. Boy, did he turn into a disappointment. He murdered her secondborn and then kind of lived as a vagabond. So she had a third son and named him Seth. And she said these words, I have gotten another man from the Lord. Why did she say that? She's hoping for that promise to come to pass. Well, being the first woman... Um, the promise wasn't fulfilled, but it was fulfilled for a woman, in a woman, and it was Mary. And so Mary brought forth the seed of the woman, singular seed, not of the seed of the man and woman. He was born of a virgin. He did not have an earthly father, Jesus. And on the cross, he removed Satan's authority. He removed his right to torment us. He paid the price for sin, for any wicked thing that was done. He received the punishment for that and disarmed the enemy, no longer having a right to punish us for our sins that he tempts us to do in the first place, because Christ took that punishment. So he, he bruised the serpent's head or the serpent's authority in doing that. But in the process of being crucified, Christ was bruised all over. But he had significant bruise on one of his heels, hanging on three nails, one in each hand, and a nail through both feet. All the weight of his body is on the three nails and one of his heels. Fulfillment of this prophecy. So go back to our verse. Nevertheless, she, speaking of the woman or the wife, will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. Sometimes things get lost in translation. And so I thought I would look at some other translations and paraphrases. The Amplified Bible says for verse 15 it translates it or paraphrases it as, Nevertheless, the sentence put upon women of pain and motherhood does not hinder their soul salvation, and they will be saved eternally if they continue in faith 
and love and holiness with self-control, saved indeed through the childbearing or by the birth of the divine child. So we're all saved by childbearing, the birth of Jesus Christ, the seed that came and bruised the head of the serpent. The Message Bible says, on the other hand, her childbearing brought about salvation, reversing Eve. But this salvation only comes to those who continue in faith, love, and holiness, gathering it all into maturity. You can depend on this. In other words, the position of women being condemned for the first woman's transgression has been redeemed by Jesus Christ, the child of an obedient woman who was in God's plan for reversing the curse of Adam's fall. So Paul knew what he meant when he wrote that. And I think that's what he meant. Although in translation, if you take it literal, um, it's really a strained verse. Just like don't drink water anymore, hate your parents, and you have to have babies to be saved. You do not see that echoed anywhere else in the Bible. In Acts, when people say, what must I do to be saved? You know, the answer is believe in Jesus, repent of your sins. Um, Nowhere, go make a baby. Does that make sense? So as you read the Bible, you don't you, you don't come across a lot of this stuff in the New Testament, but it's there. And uh, by all means, I love to talk about it and look at it. Has anybody looked at these verses before and wondered what in the world? Either throw you for a loop or you stop reading the Bible for a while. It's just me, but generally when I come across the verses, I don't understand or that seems out of contact with the rest of the Bible, I just assume, you know what, I don't know what that means, but I know what everything else means. So I just kind of skip past it. Like, one verse, one place in the Bible, I don't know what it means, but I I just focus on the stuff that I can't understand, I guess. That's good. And one of the other translations, interpretations of that is that it's given to women by divine ordination to give birth. Mm. Uh, No other can do it. Men can't do it. Uh, It was strictly reserved for them from the beginning. And that uh, when the sea crushes the head of the serpent of Satan, like he's been on final life support since you're done, your time here is it short, you know. And the bruising of his heel was not only the the crucifixion, but also the fact that the the Satan shall, uh, the serpent shall bruise his heel is the suffering that Christ endured, being in the earth that was cursed and being ruled by Satan at the time, him having dominion over it because Adam had given up his dominion of the earth to right. Satan in the temptation. Mm-hmm. And that, that bruising of, of the heel of the seed of woman was the representation of the suffering that Christ was going to go through that, that Satan was going to cause. And uh, and he did. And the ending of that was obviously the death, burial, and resurrection. Just another thought on that particular mm-hmm. verse of the head and the heel. 
Good. Well, I believe we're living in such a time where people will bring up passages like this. And uh, we don't need to dodge it. We just say, let me get back to you. <laughs> I get with some people that have thought about it and studied it out. Because we're supposed to be prepared to give answers to everyone that asks us a reason for the hope that is in us. And if this is causing someone to stumble, by all means, let's let's not run from them. I, I honestly believe that Paul literally did what verse 12 says. He didn't allow women to teach or to exercise authority. And and he says, I don't. Okay, I don't. Okay. I don't allow that. And there are several places in the in his writings, first Corinthians seven, he says, This is I'm I'm talking, not the Lord, but I'm talking. Oh. Okay. And so there are times when Paul is uh, I've got a feeling yeah. Paul if if he were on the political and national stage today, he would absolutely be hated by the left. Yeah. Because of his strong statement. Okay, in first Corinthians seven, he says it's better to be single than to be married and he says, I'm not saying this because God told me to. This is my opinion. Yeah. So in that case he let us know that he was writing an opinion. And in reality you look at it, if you're able to be single, your life is much simpler. And he was able. He was able. And so for him it was better. But if you're not able, it's just not better. Yeah, he made it clear that yeah. not everybody could do that, what yeah. he did. Yeah. And, uh, well, and, and I think you got to go ahead. Why was he able? Um, he had the gift of celibacy. Okay. Um, he was able to focus everything on the Lord and... And there were leaders like him in the church, so much so that the Catholic Church, you know, centuries later, made a doctrine out of it that priests can't be married. And so uh, a lot of good men never entered the priesthood. So they wound up with some bad guys that got in there and caused some problems that hopefully they're working through now. But, uh, I mean, think about it. If you're married, you've got a certain amount of responsibility. You're a leader of a home. If you're not married, you don't have that responsibility. Now, if you're divorced and you have kids, it really is till death do us part. I mean, you've got you've got kids to get raised, right. <laughs> and your life's not easier that way. It's kind of harder then. But uh, and I think God allowed Paul to write that because single <clears throat> people sometimes might feel picked on because you know we're all about strengthening the marriage, strengthening the home. Well, what am I? Sliced cheese, you know. What was the person that married. God ordained was marriage? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Husband and wife, there you are. Yeah. So there's a place for us all, single people and married people. And there's verses to encourage us all. But, yeah, that's a good point, Joe. Somebody else? Uh, it's real important when we read the scriptures that we think about us and so when we read verses like this, don't get disgruntled with your wife. No, think about you. Am I lining up here? I've got my, we've got our hands full dealing with ourselves. And, uh, go ahead. It just triggers a thought. When Christ went to call Lazarus out of the tomb. Yes. And Lazarus' sisters came running up to him, quoting the doctrine of 
he shall arise. I know he will arise at some point in the future in the rapture. They knew, they had been taught, and he's like, no, you don't really don't understand. I am the resurrection. I am the resurrection. He's coming out today. <laughs> and uh, But, you know, they, they, he and, you know, all the other women that are in the scriptures, too, that were with him during his ministry, that were around, that were taught, and were, and were, that were there during the same time that the 12 apostles, you know, or the, the disciples were there, 12 disciples, not 12 apostles. And there was also other disciples when he said he sent 70 out in groups of two. Mm-hmm. 70's a lot more than 12. Yeah. And uh, they were all sent on missions while he was still alive. So you know, there was a lot of people that he was teaching beyond the, the 12 right. disciples that are illuminated much. Yeah, a lot of times in that culture, they, when they counted people, they just counted the men. Next week you can handle the baptism for the dead. Yes, yes. Yeah, that's another one. Just gonna jump There's in. one <laughs> verse that talks about baptizing for the dead. <laughs> one. <laughs> to apply that, you counted it to some other verses. Anyway.